Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, and welcome to New Books in Middle East Studies. My guest today is Gary Fields, who is Professor of Communications at UC San Diego. He received his PhD from the University of California, Berkeley, in City and Regional Planning, and he often uses photo and film to explore his research interests and writes widely beyond the academy. He is the author of many articles and two books, uh, The First Territories of Profit, out 2004 from Stanford University Press, and then the subject of today's interview, Enclosure, from University of California Press 2017. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much. So we always start off with a question about your intellectual biography, and I think in particular, I want to hear about how you came to this project, which is in Middle East studies and more specifically in Palestine studies, because your first book was not at all related in your PhD research to Middle East studies at all. And it just it sounds like an interesting trajectory. Well, my intellectual biography, if we really want to start from the very beginning, I mean, I began my studies at university as a history major, and I specialized in early modern European history. And like many others in history at the time, I was especially drawn to Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels and the bold claim that they made about the past as a series of class struggles. And of course, at the time, I was impressed with their uh, extraordinary levels of erudition. But what I really found compelling in their work was the activist commitment to creating a just and more equitable society. And so this spirit of activism motivated me to go to grad school, but not in history, And instead, I chose the field of city and regional planning and actually worked as a city planner for 12 years. And I was influenced by radical and Marxist planners such as David Harvey, Manuel Castells, and Doreen Massey. And then I decided to do what many might consider the irrational thing, and that is return to university after a successful career in planning. And I did a PhD in city planning with minor fields in economic history and historical geography. And so my early work that you referred to in Territories of Profit was really an economic geographer in in economic – it was an economic geography work. But overall, I would consider myself an historical geographer. And so uh, did you want to know a little bit more about the the background to uh, enclosure uh, specifically then? Do you want me to go into that? Yeah, but actually, first, I'm really curious about the field of geography because I – I was educated outside the States for my secondary and primary education, and we were taught geography. But I'm always curious about what that means in the U.S. context. Most people think of geographers and geography as the study of capital cities, the location of rivers, mountain ranges, things on uh, things on maps. Uh, just the sort of... Uh, if we could look at the equivalent in history, the the dates and times of events. But geography is really, at least uh, the branch of geography that I'm interested in, which is human geography, that branch of geography is interested in the interplay of human activity and the landscape. So that it looks at land as its primary unit of analysis, but it's but geography is really interested in the 
the formation and evolution of land as what we would call a socially constructed uh, product. That is the, the outcome of social activity. So geography, we really think of geography as human activity on the land surface. And I think that that's, it's, it's historical, by, or it, it can be historical by definition because the land is always changing. Human history is always changing. So historical geography looks at the interplay of human transformation and the impact of human transformation on the land. Yeah, that's how I was taught geography in high school. And that's it's something that was a shock to me when I came to the U.S. that that wasn't part of the curriculum. And it was sometimes termed as population studies. It was often shelved under sociology. But it seems to me that geography was so dynamic the way that I was taught it um, that I often, yeah, I was so curious about this when I turned up in your biography. So what is the story specifically of this project? Because as you said, this, this isn't quite a as linear trajectory as most people would think, but I'm sure it's linear in your narration of it. It's, there's a, well, the story behind Enclosure, it has a very uh, unique and perhaps uh, colorful history j- just to the way it came about. You mentioned my first book, Territories of Profit, which actually appeared in late 2003. And that was really, I finished that book one year after my PhD and uh, one year after I graduated from Berkeley, and I was already a faculty member here at the University of California, San Diego, I wanted to reward myself for the work I had put into this book. And so I had decided to travel to Hawaii for the very first time. But there were a couple of individuals I knew from Berkeley who approached me with a proposition. And they were organizing, they told me they were organizing a group of American faculty members to travel to the Palestinian West Bank and Israel on an educational and fact-finding tour. And they asked me if I wanted to join them. So I began to ponder these two possibilities, Hawaii on the one hand and Palestine on the other. And lo and behold, I decided to abandon my plans for Hawaii on the assumption that the trip to the West Bank and Israel would be a a very unique experience. Remember, this was 2003, and the Second Intifada was still still really in full swing. And so I, I thought this would be an incredible experience, and I had actually never visited Israel or Palestine. And so I really was not disappointed. And one of the first stops on this trip that the group took us to was the Kalandia checkpoint separating Jerusalem from the West Bank. You probably know it well. And at Kalandia, and I remember this day, I still remember this very day, and I described this in the opening pages of Enclosure, but there was a large... A concrete wall that had just been built there, and I described in the in the beginning of enclosure. I described the emotional intensity that I experienced in observing this walled and partitioned environment. I I had never seen anything like it in my life. It was so daunting and so foreboding that I I just stared at it and it was it was almost hypnotic with its effect on me and this is this is really the kind of landscape that any geographer would find riveting and again as i said in the uh, opening to the book the, the the this landscape really captivated me and at the time, I didn't really have any pretensions of doing any kind of scholarly work on Israel or Palestine. But when I returned, after the, the trip lasted a little over two weeks. And after I returned to UC San Diego, I began to th- uh, try and, and think about whether it might be possible to reinvent myself as a scholar. Because as you say, the first book was really an economic geography of uh, communications revolutions and their impact on patterns of economic development. And so I just began to read about walls and history and fractured landscapes and thought that 
maybe as a geographer rather than a Middle East studies specialist, I might be able to make a unique contribution to the study of the Palestinian landscape that I had observed on this trip. And so I decided to return to Israel-Palestine one year after that initial trip to do some initial interviews for a possible study that I didn't really know what would what it would consist of at that time. On that trip, I interviewed the person who gave me the light bulb idea for enclosure. The person I interviewed was the mayor of a Palestinian town, Kalkilia, and the mayor's name was Maruf Zarhan. And he uh, he told me about – Kalkilia was very unique at that time because the state of Israel had entirely enclosed this city in a concrete wall. And Mayor Zarhan told me that he would take me around in his car all around the wall and show me what had been done to his city. And I'll never forget this. He used the term enclosure to describe the predicament on the the what had happened to his city and to the to the people who lived there and this term enclosure really resonated for me because as a graduate student at Berkeley I had done minor fields in European economic history and I knew what the English enclosures were and I it, I thought for a moment that maybe just maybe there might be some way in which to relate what was occurring on the Palestinian landscape to what had occurred centuries earlier on the English landscape when small tenant farmers had been dispossessed by large English estate owners and had actually been prevented after that dispossession from circulating freely across the English landscape. So I began to do a lot of research actually on the English enclosures, which I knew something about, but not in great detail. So that was really the way that this study got launched. I had the the mayor Zarhan kind of planted this notion of enclosure and that compelled me to look back to the English enclosures as a precedent for perhaps what was going on in Palestine. That's something you, I mean, I, I mentioned this to you earlier in previous conversations. I was so surprised when I opened the book to see that that was a component of it, but it makes a lot of sense. And we're going to get into that in a bit, but just on that same sort of theme about how um, these recurrent patterns emerge and in two different places in the book, uh, I think in the introduction, you say that a, that there are recurrent patterns of power and that, and I sort of see this other quote as its twin, that history rhymes rather than repeats. I'm going to be saying that for a while, by the way, that's highly quotable. And I think it's so thoughtful and very true of history because we often look at cyclical patterns of history, but I think history rhyming says something more about human nature. So is that what inspired the comparative framework of the book? Because there's another case study involved. Yes, there's a, there's a third. I mean, I, two case, a comparative case study book is hard enough. But when you add a third case, it sort of uh, exponentially gets much more difficult. But the – and I'll, I'll get into that, the reason why I added the third case in a second. But one of the most popular cliches we hear about all the time is that history repeats itself. And I've always been uh, kind of a critic of this cliché. And I say this in the book. I mean, there's no real serious historians who have ever accepted that cliche. I mean, you can look at Hegel, you can look at Marx, along with many others who uh, use much different metaphors to describe the, the, the patterns of history. And so, to me, a much better way of understanding the recurrent these recurrent patterns that look similar but are not the same is the concept of of rhyming not repeating and so when 
when Mayor Zaron, for instance, used the term enclosure to describe the fate of Calkelia, I, I began to think of this or began to, to cast my thoughts back to this rhyming metaphor. And I came up with maybe the English enclosures might uh, uh, hold some insight as to what the situation in Palestine, what, how we might be able to better understand that. And so maybe I'll just describe that for a second, how, how it was that I came to this. I mean, I knew from some of my earlier studies about the English enclosures, how large estate owners beginning in the 16th century, how they mounted a concerted campaign to take possession of land that for centuries had been used by small tenant farmers in England as a common resource, mostly for grazing animals, but also for collecting foodstuffs and fuel. And that gradually over the, the course of the next couple of centuries, centuries, virtually all of this stock of common land in England transitioned to individual ownership. And in transitioning to, to exclusive ownership, it became off, it became the domain of one group of people, but off limits to another. I used this analogy to try and understand what was happening on the Palestinian landscape, because it seemed to me that what was occurring there was something that rhymed with the English enclosures. The, the groups were different. The time was different. The geography, of course, was different. But what was occurring that was fundamentally similar was that a group with territorial ambitions who coveted the land of another group already on that land managed to use their power to seize control of that land and make it the exclusive domain of Israeli Zionists so that what was what belonged to to Palestinians at one at one time transitions to Israeli Zionists and i thought that that was quite similar to the way that common land used by small English tenant farmers had transitioned to large English estate owners. Now, the way that the third case comes in, and the third case is the case of Native Americans, and there is a, a bridge here that's uh, extremely important, because the what the uh, English estate owners used to justify their takeover of common land is that they claimed that they could improve the land, make it more productive, more efficient, much that, that they were in a much better position to make improvements, to make productivity improvements in the land than small tenant farmers. And they used that as justification for taking over uh, that uh, land, that common land. Israeli Zionists make a similar claim beginning in the late 19th century that they claimed that the land in Palestine had been neglected, it had been left barren, it had uh, been all, and, and everything uh, akin to being almost empty. And that the Zionists made the claim that they were in a position because of their technical know-how, because of their skills, to improve that land in a, in, in a similar kind of way. Well, the English... Uh, that those say, that same argument is used by English colonists to justify their takeover of Amerindian land beginning in the 17th century, and they borrow that discourse. They borrowed that discourse from the from what English estate owners were saying about the English landscape. So that discourse about land improvement actually migrates from the English countryside to the England's North American colonies, and we find it also in the discourse of Israeli Zionists. They use this very same discourse to justify their takeover of land that was used and possessed by others. So it's, it's, a, it's a pattern, again, that rhymes and that resonates and that endures throughout a long period of time that makes these three cases comparable. The idea of improving land is also just not uncommon to us in our common vocabulary. I think we talk about renovating, we talk about landscaping. There's yeah. always the idea that something can be better, right? Like 
an old building can be torn down, um, an old building can be resurfaced. Um, but what about that in the context of a landscape? What does that actually mean? How are how were these discord? How did these discourses attempt to improve land, so to speak? What was their rhetoric? The the rhetoric as uh, f- from from my perspective, I what I found is that this concept of improving land becomes. I mean, it's it's actually it's like you say it's present in a number of different societies, and it's it was even present in uh, some of the old Ottoman land laws, uh, the idea of improving empty land. But I came across a systematic effort by the English, beginning in the 16th century, to improve land in conjunction with making agriculture more productive. And this comes up as in conjunction with the development of the profit system, the development of capitalism. The idea of making the agricultural system something that could sustain an industrial population starts to emerge much more forcefully beginning in the 16th and especially the 17th century because the idea of of requiring a productive agriculture is really the precondition for industrial development. So land improvement becomes a very, very popular discourse beginning in the 16th and 17th century. And the idea was that land left in common, land left fallow, land that was not fully utilized was land that was somehow... Uh, somehow less than desirable. And there was a whole um, movement among uh, English uh, agrarian writers beginning in the 16th and 17th century to uh, inspire farmers to make their lands more productive. And this is what actually influences large estate owners to launch a concerted campaign to reclaim common lands and to to recast them as private part of private estates that would then employ wage labor and become much more productive instead of small scattered individual farms so this this idea of land improvement takes off as a justification for creating large-scale private property on the English landscape. And this begins to it, uh, it, it begins to, to multiply and expand across large areas of the English landscape as estate owners begin to enlist parliament in this campaign for land improvement that becomes a national pastime and even a national obsession. And it it emerges in conjunction with uh, nationalism and capitalism both. And so you have this discourse that then is used as a justification in, uh, in England's overseas colonies to, uh, Try to to take over what what the English colonists considered to be the underutilized land of of Amerindians, and the same kinds of justifications are used to take these lands. That is, that the English planter is much more productive in. Uh, farming land than the uh, than the Indian farmer, and this this discourse is used and recycled over and over again by the Virginia Company. And it's really it's really the figure of John Locke, who's who's a central figure here, because Locke is not only a theorist of private property, but he himself is uh, involved in the in England's colonial uh, ventures in in the Carolina uh, colonies. And he provides much of the ideological 
justification for land improvement and for the idea of sinking one's labor into the ground as a justification for taking control of Indian land. I mean, Locke disparages, disparages the cultivation efforts of Indians, and he uses this notion of improvement, this notion of putting one's labor into the land as a justification for owning it. He uses this as a justification for the taking of Amerindian land. Well, the same this very same justification is used by Zionists to take the, uh, the, the, the this idea of a barren, empty, neg- and neglected landscape. This very same discourse is used by Zionists beginning in the 19th century to justify the dispossession of Palestinians and the ascension to the landscape of Zionists as the preeminent improvers of the land. And so this notion of land improvement is really one of the organizing themes of the book. It appears as a thread through all three of these cases, that is the English enclosures, the Anglo-American colonial frontier and Palestine, it emerges as a justification for groups with territorial ambitions to lay claim to land that was being used and possessed by other groups already there. So the book itself is titled Enclosure. And what I really admire is that you are very flexible, the term enclosure, and you define it differently depending on what you require from it. You give us different parts of the definition. Um, and enclosure you define as practice. Um, and then you also define it as domination and dispossession. And again, it's it's striking to me how those are all parts of the same definition and that they're not dissimilar. So can you break down the meaning of what an enclosure is? I was inspired to use the term enclosure as the overall organizing theme in the book by the English enclosures, because what occurs in England, uh, and that's the, the, the first case in the book, what, what, what occurs in England is this transition from that estate owners actually orchestrate and engineer with the help of parliament, this transition that they engineer from common land that was used as a common resource. And and this land used as a common resource was quite extensive. How they were able to transition that land from being a common resource to being a private preserve of these estates. And this transition in England basically occurs as a result of, and I can get into this a little bit later, but it, it occurs as a result of what I call three essential technologies of force. One through uh, mapping of the land, one through the use of property law, and thirdly through the reorganization of the landscape itself. So really what enclosure is, it's a, it's what it, what it, what it really is, it's the taking over of land belonging to another group by means of these instruments or technologies of power and force, that is, maps, law, and the built environment. And this practice, this is a practice, but it's a practice essentially of dispossession. It's a practice of taking and seizing control of land. So it is, as you say, it's both a practice, but it is also an end result. And the end result is the transfer of land from one group of people to another. In the English case, it's the transfer of land from common small tenant farmers to large estate owners. In the case of the Anglo-American colonial frontier, it is the transition of land from Indian, Amerindian use and Amerindian possession to colonists. And in the case of Palestine, this very same practice or process reflects the transition of land under Palestinian ownership and use to, to Zionists. It is this 
common practice in all three cases that I referred to as enclosure. Can you speak, I mean, you spoke a bit to the use of uh, technology and uh, of legal resources to enclosures. Can you speak a bit more about that in the Palestinian case? Yeah, the the, the uh, Palestinian case, I, in, in all three cases, what I'm arguing is that they are uh, parallel and similar based upon the the common uh, discourse of improvement that threads all three cases. They're all also similar in the way that these three uh, three different groups with territorial ambitions in all three periods use these instruments, that is the maps, law, and the built environment, essentially as technologies to wrest control of land used by other groups, groups already there, and to transfer that land into their own possession. In the Palestinian case, the it's it's very interesting the way this uh, this happens. The the Zionists, from a very early date, they begin to project a certain kind of. Uh, imagined what what Edward Said referred to as an imagined vision of the landscape, they begin to um, to project their imagined vision of the Palestinian landscape as a Hebrew landscape through the maps that they uh, that they drafted. They would, for instance, and one of the, one of the best examples of this are the land is the land maps that were drawn up by the. Uh, Jewish National Fund. This is the institution that was responsible for buying buying land in Palestine and actually for for, uh, forestation as well. But they were also uh, they had a mission of drawing maps of the Palestinian landscape. And probably one of the most famous maps that they did was a map that they placed upon one of the uh, most famous symbols for collecting funds for the Zionist mission, the blue box that was put, placed in in Jewish schools, synagogues, and other uh, kinds of Jewish institutions. And uh, quite a, I mean, it, it's hard to believe, but quite a large sum of money, m- many millions of dollars were actually collected uh, as a result of these boxes, but on the box, on the the graphic for these boxes, the Jewish National Fund placed a map in which Palestine was essentially depicted as a blank slate. That is, there were no Palestinian towns on this blue box. It was basically a white and empty space. And the idea that the Zionists tried to project uh, in this uh, in this graphic, in this cartographic uh, depiction of Palestine, was that there was that, that this was essentially a land without people. And that it was also used as kind of a propaganda map to try and appeal to potential Jewish settlers to come to Palestine and settle so that they used maps as part of an a projecting this imagined vision of a essentially Hebrew landscape because all that's really on the map are places where Jewish settlements appeared in the 1920s and 1930s. No Palestinian presence is really represented on this map. So this was a map that essentially was used as a projection of an imagined Hebrew landscape in Palestine. Now, once the once the uh, Zionists succeeded in t- essentially taking control of roughly 78% of historic Palestine in 1947-49, they had control over the uh, apparatus of the state, and they used the state as kind of a weapon in 
dispossessing those Palestinians that remained, that had managed to remain, which was a very small percentage of them, by the way. But they used this to pass a number of of uh, land and property laws during the 1950s and essentially culminates in 1960 with the uh, land uh, the, one of the most famous law, the most famous law of, in this series of four different laws, was something called the absentee property law, in which basically all of the Palestinians who had been uh, rendered refugees during the conflict essentially were stripped of their all their uh, ownership of their land and property through this through a uh, process of reclassifying people as refugees and reclassifying the land and property they owned as absentee property and this practice uh, which essentially was became legalized essentially dispossessed 80% of the Palestinian population that had been there in 1948 the third element that they the Zionists use in re casting the entire uh, Palestinian landscape is really the the built environment itself. And the institution that is most central to this practice is the Jewish settlement. They essentially uh, use the power of the state to begin settling that landscape, that is settling those areas of the Palestinian landscape that had formerly been Palestinian. They begin to settle this with hundreds of new Jewish towns and settlements that they rename with Jewish names, and the entire landscape takes on a Hebrew character. So each component of the book is so different, as you describe, and I can imagine that the research for each of those was different, especially because you engaged in um, field, actual physical field work for the Palestinian component. How did it differ from each to each? Oh, okay, yes. The th- indeed, the three cases, the three case studies for the book, the English enclosure case, the dispossession of Native Americans, and the disp- and Palestinian case, each of them, uh, the research is very, very different. And really, the, what, what really launched the book was the research I did on the English enclosures. After I did the initial uh, round of interviews after the, fir- the that I described in the beginning of the interview, where I interviewed the mayor and several other Palestinians who had been dispossessed, I be I went back to the English enclosures, and most most of that research was through secondary literature because I did not have any illusions about making an original contribution to the literature on the English enclosures. That's a very old and well-established historiography, and I did not believe that I was going to intervene in those debates. But what I did want to do in each particular section of the book, including this one, is I wanted to to look at some primary documents, some primary sources. So I did, I did a couple of, uh, in addition to the reading extensively on the secondary literature, and really the I, I can point to two main books that were instrumental in this. One was a book by Robert Allen, uh, that and that book was called. The the book by Robert Allen was Enclosure and the Yeoman, the Agricultural Development of the South Midlands. And the other book was a book by Jeanette Neeson. And that, it's a very, again, another famous book on the enclosures. And that book was entitled Commoners, Common Right, Enclosure, and Social Change in England, 1700 to 1820. And those two books were extremely extremely influential in suggesting to me the parallels with the, the the Palestinian case. But what I also did is I looked in uh, some of the uh, archives at enclosure maps, 
because I wanted to see the way in which estate owners were being influenced by English map make, making of the early modern period and how some of these maps were projecting new visions about how to reorganize estates to become much more uh, efficient, much more uh, organized, and much less, much less uh, dependent on small tenant farmers, and much more sort of uh, Im- kind of embedded with this notion of large-scale farming. So I looked at a lot at a lot of maps of some of these early estates and how these maps were transforming the vision of estate owners. The in terms of the uh, Anglo-American case, I also used extensively, I used the secondary literature because again, uh, this was very similar. I did not believe that I was going to make an original contribution to the literature on the uh, Native Americans and the colonial Anglo-American colonial frontier. But what I also did in uh, in that particular uh, case is I also looked at the way in which English mapping of North America projected English imagined English visions of this territory as an English space, an English landscape. They, uh, especially very early, the the maps, the early colonial maps of the, of John Smith, who mapped Virginia and New England. I mean, these, and there were a whole uh, series of maps that are very, very well known and famous um, John John Mitchell's map of 1755, the map of John Malish in 1816. These maps essentially projected territorial landscapes that were absent Amerindians, and I looked at those. I looked at those maps very carefully because I wanted to to do some original research that I think had not been done as extensively in terms of some of the, the, the imagined cartography of North America as essentially an English space. So these cases were basically most of the research was secondary literature and some original research on cartography. The Palestinian case, as you say, was quite different. What I did there is I tried to uh, use an extensive series of both direct observation of the Palestinian landscape and in- extensive interviews with farmers, mostly farmers, whose land had been uh, taken by, uh, by the state of Israel in one form or another. And I, but I also, I, I also interviewed, uh, and this was, uh, these were very difficult. But I also interviewed settlers, and I also interviewed mayors of settlements, and I wanted to get their perspective on what they were essentially doing in uh, settling the land of Palestine. I wanted to get their specific take on it, and I. What I tried to do is I tried to, to in these interviews, I didn't try to editorialize or I tried to just let the interviewees speak for themselves and let the facts that they were describing speak to the reader. So this is, a, this issue in particular, the Israel-Palestine issue, the question of Palestine, as some have put it, um, the Israeli occupation of Palestine, has considerable political relevance, um, and it's a divisive issue. And especially in the academy, where there's this presumption of scholarly objectivity, which I don't necessarily believe in. Um, and then you have the moral elements. I mean, do you have a moral obligation to write what you believe or to write something that you think is scholarly objective? Um and I feel like I know which side you're on simply because of the way you frame the book and the vocabulary you use. So how do you navigate this issue academically? 
I tried at all times in this book to be more or less a dispassionate observer of truth. My, my goal was always simply to tell the truth about what I had uncovered in terms of my research, what I had experienced in terms of what I saw directly, and what and to, to convey accurately and as, uh, as truthfully as possible what my interviewees told me about their experiences. I really did not try at all in this book to editorialize with a point of view. I tried to let the truth speak for itself and let readers come to their own understanding about the situation in Palestine. And I think that I think making the comparison and, ma- and making the argument that Palestin- the Palestinian case resonates with the English enclosures and the dispossession of Amerindians, I think that that I mean that's that's a that that can be interpreted as a a powerful argument. And indeed, I was trying to make a forceful argument about the comparability of Israeli Zionists with English estate owners and Anglo-American colonists and to show why it was that the Zionist movement is not something unique at all. And the situation in Palestine, far from unique, is part of this long-standing lineage of dispossession and a, a long-standing story about groups with territorial ambitions who essentially do the same thing throughout history. They, uh, who, who, they covet land, and they use these instruments of power and control to wrest control of land belonging to others and to transition that, ex- that land to themselves in creating what I call in the book exclusionary landscapes. That is really the, one, the, the central theme of what I'm trying to convey in the book. How do these exclusionary landscapes get created? What goes into their creation? And how are they similar across time and across geography? I let the reader uh, I let the reader come to their own understanding based upon the evidence that I marshal in the book about whether I have made the argument about the comparability of these three cases. I think I've done that, and I think I show how the Israeli case resonates so forcefully with these other two cases of power and dispossession. I think it's something that as you read through the book, you really do see that it's a narrative that these, as you said, the echoes are there and thematically they're there. And then you have the evidence, which is so powerful. Um, Just, I mean, it's, I didn't think reading this interpretation of English property law would be that riveting, but it was just like, I I could sort of see where you were going with it as I went along. Mm -hmm. Um, Something else that I mentioned towards the beginning of the interview is that you have also this experience with photo and film, and you mentioned that you were a city planner, and I know that you have a photo project that you link to on your faculty page um, called Landscapes of Occupation in Palestine. Was that part of the research, or was that something that was parallel to it? No, I I really started this research. I the uh, the last time I really picked up a camera was uh, I'm not going to say what year was it was, but some of your listeners will probably get a, uh, an idea of this. The last time I picked up a camera was with something called a Kodak Brownie Fiesta. And that was a an old film camera of many decades ago. I hadn't taken pictures in a long time since then. But I thought that for this project, if I was going to do a project on the nature of the way landscapes change as power and dispossession becomes part of the human experience on that landscape, I thought I would have to 
to at least visually document some of that for the book. And so I got myself a camera in 2004 and began to take pictures. And I began to get good at the practice. So that's essentially how that came about. And much of the picture taking is directly connected with the research because, as as you know, uh, some of the some of the photos that I've that I took appear in the book, and I had to you know I had to take good quality photos, so I had to learn how to use a camera and had to be skilled at it. So I began to do that as part of the study, but I also began to look at other aspects of photography, which at times can be controversial because, I mean, photography is, I mean, landscape photography, portrait photography, these kinds of, uh, this kind of photographic practice, uh, this, I, I believe that this can tell, help tell stories. And that's what I wanted to do with, in my photography. I, I wanted to not only tell stories about the landscape itself, but the human activity taking place on the landscape. So I began to to use the camera in seeking to tell stories about the way human beings interact with their environment and to depict the kind of emotion that goes into what I myself had observed in doing field work in Palestine with with interviewees and the, the kinds of, at times, uh, very heart-wrenching stories that I heard from them about their experiences. So I wanted to capture some of that in, uh, in the photographs that I took. Well, congratulations on the book itself. It's truly an achievement. I know you mentioned that it was nominated for a book award. So again, congratulations. Thank you. Um, so what are you working on next? Sort of what are your future projects? Can you tease them out for us? I can tease out my next project because it's, uh, it's something that I was thinking about as I finished this book. I was lucky on a couple of occasions I was able to travel to Gaza uh, as a result of uh, being able to get the necessary documentation and I really thought that Gaza was uh, Gaza in many ways is is so different and unique even from the West Bank and I accumulated so, a lot of experiences and interviews in Gaza. But as I was finishing Enclosure, I was not able to incorporate the Gaza material into this book. It had already assumed a a fairly, it it was way over what the publisher had uh, allotted me in terms of words, although they, the publisher was very good about it. But the book was already 420 pages. And that's in today's, that's a very long book today. And what I had to do is I had to basically jettison all the material that I had collected on Gaza. So in terms of my next project, I want to do a book on confinement, on the theme of confinement, using the Gaza Strip as the anchor case study for that for that book, it will be a much shorter book, but this uh, this next study on Gaza is what I have my sights set on, and I'm hoping to go there uh, actually in three weeks. Well, best of luck. It sounds like it'll be a difficult but very fulfilling project. Thank you, and thank you again for sitting down speaking to me today. Okay, I enjoyed it a, a lot, and uh, thank you for having me.